Hello, and welcome to our Every Woman's Grace study in the book of Acts. This week, we get to study together about the first missionary journey that Paul ever took. But before we dig into the ministry trip of Paul and Barnabas, let's get a little background. We come this week in our study of Acts to a turning point. We've seen how Luke, the author and careful historian, has shown us the gospel going out in the same way that the risen Lord Jesus described before he ascended back to heaven. You probably remember that Acts 1.8 gives us an outline of the book of Acts. Jesus said there that the apostles would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon them, and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Acts shows us the continuing work of Jesus to build his church through the Holy Spirit-empowered ministry of the apostles. The early chapters of Acts showed us their ministry in the city of Jerusalem, Then, after Stephen was martyred for his faith at the end of chapter 7, the persecution that arose scattered the believers, and in chapter 8 and the subsequent chapters, we read how the gospel was going out through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, in chapter 13, the focus of Acts shifts to show the gospel going out to the end of the earth, just as Jesus had said it would. This is both geographical and ethnic, as the church which began with primarily Jewish believers now welcomes vast amounts of Gentiles, and the two previously hostile groups become one in Christ. As the second half of Ephesians 2 says about Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. It goes on to say that he reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity or the animosity between them. We see the Trinity at work, As Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, through Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. We have studied the salvation of the Gentile Ethiopian eunuch, and then the Gentile centurion Cornelius and his friends and family. In chapter 11, we learn that some of those who spread out from Jerusalem as persecution escalated founded the world's first largely Gentile church in a city called Antioch in what was then Syria modern-day Turkey. When the church in Jerusalem heard about how God was richly blessing the thriving church at Antioch, they sent faithful, godly Barnabas to them. Remember, his given name was Joseph, but the apostles had dubbed him Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. Barnabas was responsible for convincing the disciples and apostles to accept Paul, who back then was still known as Saul, after his conversion on the road to Damascus. The disciples were then understandably afraid of Paul after all he'd done to persecute believers. But Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told how God had saved him and how Paul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus after God had saved him. Barnabas rejoiced to see what God was doing there in Antioch. He exhorted and encouraged the believers. And then he went and got Paul from Tarsus. They both stayed at that church in Syrian Antioch for a year teaching the new believers. We read last week that Barnabas and Saul took famine relief from this Gentile church to the suffering Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and when they returned to Antioch, they brought a young relative of Barnabas, probably a cousin, with them named John Mark. All three of these men were in our studies this week. Now we come to our first part of our outline for today, set apart for service in Syrian Antioch. If you look down at the first few verses of chapter 13, You can tell that this was a flourishing, spirit-filled church, one that knew and lived by what the Word of God said. They had five godly men leading and teaching the church, 
and the believers were worshiping the Lord and they were fasting. Our pastors described fasting as something that is not commanded in the New Testament, but it's assumed for Christians. Fasting can be a time when you're either so focused on spiritual matters that you don't even have an appetite for food, or when you choose to set aside food for a time to focus on spiritual things. Look at verse 2. As they are ministering to the Lord, or some translations say worshiping the Lord, the Holy Spirit somehow tells them to set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. Back in the days of the early church, before the whole Bible was complete, God sometimes spoke to or through godly people in the church who had a spiritual gift called prophecy. So this may be how the Holy Spirit told them. We don't know for certain because the text doesn't say. Barnabas and Paul are two important godly leaders at the church at Antioch, but we don't see any hesitation on the part of the church to let them go. They immediately obey. In verse 3, we see them fasting again and praying and then sending them out. Notice that Barnabas and Paul were already serving in the local church when God gave them this special assignment. This is a good reminder to us to be active in the church where God has placed us, using our gifts to serve one another and bring glory to God. As we do this, we can trust that God will direct our steps to where He wants us. The rest of chapters 13 and 14 show us the work God had for Paul and Barnabas, and it all takes place on what we commonly call their first missionary journey. As you saw in their lesson this week, this trip took them to multiple cities, first on the island of Cyprus, and then on the mainland of Asia Minor in what is modern-day Turkey. A lot of things in Paul's ministry are hard to date, but many scholars believe that they departed from Syrian Antioch around A.D. 46 or 47 and were possibly gone about a year and a half. There should be a map similar to this one that's available for download online. And you can use it today to trace their journey along with us. If you don't have that map, many study Bibles have a map of Paul's first missionary journey in the back that you could reference. My husband and I met during a college semester in Israel 20 years ago this month, and one of the things that we learned most from was the pre-trip assignment to read Bible passages and mark their events on the corresponding maps. I hope that following along with Paul and Barnabas on this map will be beneficial to you as well and help you to have a better grasp on our text today. Although we will be focused on Cyprus and Asia Minor, I wanted to provide a wider map so that you could see those areas um, that you might be less familiar with in relation to ones that you might be more geographically aware of. As you look at the land surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, I'm sure you can spot Jerusalem in the bottom right corner of the map. Italy, of course, is across at the top left, and what is now modern Greece is to Italy's right, where the cities of Athens and Corinth are marked. Along the bottom of the map is Africa, with Egypt on the bottom right side. My hope is that perhaps these more recognizable landmarks will give you a better sense of the locations on our journey today. The second point on your outline is ministry on Cyprus. If it helps you, you can make subpoints from each city that they visit as we go through these chapters. The first city here is Salamis. Back in Acts 4.36, we learned that Barnabas was actually from the island of Cyprus, so they began their journey in an area familiar to him. Cyprus today is an independent nation, but back then the island was a Roman province. Although they were in the minority, there was a significant Jewish population there. To get there, the missionaries had to travel for perhaps two days, about 16 miles from Syrian Antioch down to the port of Seleucia. I'm going to give some mileage today for those of you that like to track along with that, but if it's a little bit overwhelming, feel free to just ignore that. 
Then they went about 130 miles over the water to Cyprus's main port city, Salamis. On your map, you can find Syrian Antioch, which is on the far right and marked with a star, and then draw an arrow from there to the point of Seleucia, and then another arrow to the city of Salamis on the island of Cyprus. If the weather was clear, they could have looked from the mainland out across the Mediterranean Sea and seen all the way to Cyprus. Look down at Acts 13.5, and you'll learn several things. At the end of the verse, it says, And they also had John as their helper. This is Barnabas' young relative, John Mark. He's better known to us as Mark, since later in his life he was used by God to write the Gospel of Mark. But he had a lot of learning and maturing to do before that point. We also say, see in verse 5, that when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Of course, the proclamation of the word of God is the most important part of any mission because it's the Holy Spirit working through the power of God's word revealed in Scripture that changes hearts and lives and saves souls. I believe this is the only city on any of Paul's missionary journeys that's described as having a large enough Jewish population to have multiple synagogues. And we see here Barnabas and Paul in a pattern that continued through the rest of Paul's lifelong ministry. When he arrived in a new city, he would go first to preach at the local synagogue if there was one. Although Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles, we know that he always had a burden for the salvation of his Jewish countrymen. In the first few verses of Romans 10, Paul said that his heart's desire and prayer to God for them was their salvation. Paul's background as a Pharisee and a former student of the famous Rabbi Gamaliel gave him natural opportunities to speak, since it was a common custom to invite visiting teachers to teach in the synagogue after the reading of the scriptures. When I was studying to be a junior high teacher, the importance of building on students' prior knowledge was often emphasized in my classes. In my years of teaching, I saw over and over how effective a strategy it was. Paul was a far better teacher than I could ever hope to be. And of course, he too knew the value of this approach. Because his Jewish listeners were already familiar with the scriptures and had a knowledge of the God who gave them, Paul would reference the truths they already knew and then build on them. Paul frequently quoted from what we call the Old Testament and then skillfully showed how Jesus was the fulfillment of its prophecies and promises. So verse 5 tells us that Barnabas and Paul proclaimed God's word in the synagogues with John Mark's assistance, but we don't know how the people of Salamis responded. We go on now to the next city, which is called Paphos. That can be the second point on your outline under Cyprus. Luke's account of the men's travels continues on in verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. As you mark your map, you can see that Paphos is southwest of Salamis, all the way on the other end of Cyprus. They had to walk about 90 miles on foot to get there. It was the center of the Roman government of Cyprus, and Luke tells us that the missionary team there encountered two very different people. One was a magician and a Jewish false prophet, Bar-Jesus, the other was an intelligent man in charge of the whole island, the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus. There's spiritual warfare going on here, a battle for the soul of Sergius Paulus. The proconsul is seeking to hear the word of God, and in verse 8 we see that Bar-Jesus opposes them. The Greek word that's translated oppose is, a, is forceful, and it means to stand against or to resist. It's the same word that we got the term antihistamine from. 
Antihistamines like the medicine Benadryl physically block the chemical that reacts to things we're allergic to, keeping it from reaching its target so that our body's reaction to the allergen is reduced. Bar Jesus wanted to block the gospel message that Barnabas and Paul had and keep it from reaching Sergius Paulus so that he could not respond and be saved. Verse 8 tells us that he was working to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He benefited from his role with the proconsul, and he personally did not want to lose those benefits. Meanwhile, he was being used by Satan, who did not want to see Sergius Paulus hear and believe the gospel. God, however, had other plans. He gave Paul insight into the heart of the wicked false prophet. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was guided and directed by the Spirit to act in accordance with God's will, and he gave him a sharp rebuke. Ironically, Bar-Jesus means son of salvation, but Paul called him son of the devil and an enemy of all righteousness. Paul accurately accused him of making crooked the straight ways of the Lord and pronounced God's judgment on him, immediate blindness. This miracle of judgment was a powerful testimony to the proconsul of God's power, and when Sergius Paulus saw it, he believed with true saving faith. But it wasn't just the miracle, the blinding of Bar-Jesus— Verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. The signs and wonders in the book of Acts did not save anyone. God gave the apostles the ability to do supernatural miracles in order to validate their message and show that their teaching was from God himself in those early years of the church when the New Testament had not yet been completed. Christians do not have or need these abilities today because we have the complete revealed word of God. It is important to note that verse 12 shows that Sergius Paulus did not become a Christian because he saw a miracle. The miracle just showed that what Paul and Barnabas was saying was indeed the teaching of the Lord. On that day, Bar-Jesus went from physical sight to blindness, and Sergius Paulus went from spiritual blindness to sight. Ephesians 1.4 says of believers that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God had chosen Sergius Paulus for salvation even before the world was created, and he brought Paul and Barnabas to Paphos, at least in part, so that the Roman consul could hear the good news and see the power of God and be saved. We've seen God direct his servants to bring about the salvation of other individuals in Acts, and later in the book, we'll see God use the wrongful imprisonment of Paul and Silas to save the Philippian jailer and his family. I love seeing how some of the many ways God works— bring individuals to salvation in Acts, and remembering that God is still doing that today. Consider whether may God may have put a person or people in your life so that you could give the gospel to them. Romans 10, 13, and 14 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but asks, how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? Perhaps God has you in the circumstances that you are currently in for such a time as this so that you can be used to give the gospel to someone who needs to hear it, so they can believe and be saved. Now look back up at Acts 13, verse 9. An important phrase to notice there is Saul, who was also known as Paul. I've just been calling him Paul today for simplicity, but there's a distinct change in the text. Saul was his Jewish name, and Luke has called him that up to this point. But from here on, through the rest of the book, he's referred to as Paul, his Roman name, since he is now ministering primarily to Gentiles. Some people think that God changed his name back at his conversion, but that's not the case. Now that he's in Gentile territory, he will use Paul from this time forward. 
We come now to verse 13 and the third point in our outline, ministry in Galatia. We'll talk more about Galatia in a few minutes, but first, look in your Bible at Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. You can add an arrow to Perga on your map, but you don't need to add this city as a subpoint on your outline. So Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark have left the island of Cyprus and crossed the Mediterranean Sea to Asia Minor. We've already said that's modern-day Turkey. They landed at the city of Perga, which is a little ways inland but was accessible by sailing up a river. When they arrive, there's a short phrase that later is going to cause big ripples in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. John, speaking of John Mark, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. He was there by the port and decided to quit and go back home rather than continuing on for the rest of the missionary journey that he had signed up for. This chapter doesn't talk about the fallout, but as we'll study next week at the end of chapter 15, this ended up resulting in a major conflict between Paul and Barnabas because when they got ready to leave on a second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted his younger relative to join them again. Paul emphatically said no, and Luke gave his reason in Acts 15.38. Paul said that they should not take along the one who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. The disagreement was so sharp that these two godly men, who had been friends and partners in the Lord for many years, parted ways, took different men with them, and left separately. Thankfully, we do know from other texts that this dissension was eventually resolved, and Paul later viewed John Mark as a valuable ministry partner. The word Galatia is not mentioned in Acts 13 and 14, but I'm sure you recognize it since one of Paul's epistles was written to the Galatians. Paul's other letters were written to a single person or a church in one city, but Galatians is different. Unlike Ephesus or Corinth, Galatia is not a city. In Paul's day, it was a Roman province with multiple cities, and the book of Galatians was written to these churches that Paul established there. Those churches were founded on the missionary journey that we are studying this week in Acts 13 and 14. The Roman province of Galatia changed shape several times over the years, but in Paul's day in the first century AD, it was an area that included most of the cities Paul and Barnabas would visit, Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Did you notice as you studied the text this week that there was another change in how Paul was referred to? Previously, the missionaries have been spoken of as Barnabas and Saul, with Barnabas named first in the place of prominence. The order of the names in the New Testament often has meaning. For example, in the lists of the 12 disciples, they're not always given in the same order, but Peter, a leader, is always mentioned first, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ, is always mentioned last. The meaning makes a difference here, too. As they prepare to leave Cyprus, we can see that Paul is now considered the leader. Verse 13 actually describes them as Paul and his companions. And most of the references to the men from here on in Acts will be Paul and Barnabas. So if you are making subpoints on your outline with each city that they visit, I mentioned that you would want to skip Perga for now. That is first because Perga is not in Galatia, and this is ministry in Galatia. There's no record of them doing any ministry in Galatia either. We don't know for certain, but many scholars believe that Paul may have contracted a disease, likely malaria, which was really common in that low-lying area, and he was so sick that he may have needed to leave the low coastal plain of Perga and go up to a higher elevation for the sake of his health. Antioch and Pisidia was much higher. 
In Galatians 4, 13 and 14, Paul wrote to these churches saying, You know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. So Paul and Barnabas leave on a perilous trek up to Pisidian Antioch. Our first city under ministry in Galatia is Pisidian Antioch, or you can also call it Antioch in Pisidia to distinguish it from the other city by the same name. Look down at the first half of verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch. So don't confuse this Antioch with the other one. Um, I know it can be a little confusing, but it could be worse because a Syrian king actually named 16 cities after his father Antiochus. And thankfully, we only have to be concerned with two of them today. Although intentional, verse 14 has a remarkable understatement. They arrived at Pisidian Antioch. This required a treacherous path of more than 100 miles that they took from Perga to Pisidian Antioch. It went through the rugged Taurus Mountains, involved crossing two wild rivers, and was known for its robbers and fierce residents. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul recounted many of the hardships he had faced during his ministry, and in verse 26, he wrote, I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers. Many scholars think that he may have been referring to this perilous route. When they at last reached Pisidian Antioch, the second half of verse 14 states that on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue official sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. What preacher or missionary could resist that open invitation? So Paul spoke, and what you read this week in verses 16 to 41 is not Paul's first ever sermon but it is the first and longest sermon that's recorded in the scripture for us. He stood and addressed the two groups of people there, calling for their attention to the important message he had for them. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The men of Israel were, of course, Jewish, and those who feared God were Gentiles, who had turned away from their pagan polytheistic religions to worship the God of the Jews. Now that Paul had their attention, he began in verse 17, giving a concise overview of Israel's history with God as the central sovereign character. Did you notice when you read this chapter at home that God is the subject of nearly all the verbs in this first section? God is doing the action. The God of Israel chose our ancestors. God made them great. God gave them their land. God gave them King Saul when they demanded a king and later removed that sinful king. Then he gets to King David in verse 22. This is important to Paul's message because not only was David a man after God's own heart, a man who had repented wholeheartedly when he sinned and sought to do God's will, but God had given David a very special promise, a covenant back in 2 Samuel 7. God always keeps his promises, doesn't he, ladies? One of the blessings God promised David in the Davidic covenant was that David's house and kingdom and throne would be established forever. A physical descendant of David would rule and reign eternally. There was what we call a near fulfillment back in David's day when his son and their sons ruled, but the greater fulfillment of this eternal ruler was not merely a human child. This was prophesied many places in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which we often hear at Christmas. About 600 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Ever Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The Jews and perhaps some of the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue that Sabbath would have known these verses and many more that spoke of this greater son of David, the Messiah. In verse 23 of Acts 13, Paul declared to them, From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Isaiah had also prophesied a forerunner to the Messiah, the one who would prepare the way. That was John the Baptist, and Paul talked about him too. He reminds them that John had called for a baptism of repentance, an outside cleansing that should indicate the repentance in their heart, recognition of sin, and readiness to hear the message of salvation from the Messiah. Paul's hearers needed that same repentance and readiness. Paul again spoke directly to both categories of people that were listening, calling them to pay attention to this crucial point. Look at verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. Do you hear how he joined the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles as one group? The message of salvation has been sent to us. He went on in verses 27 and following to describe the rejection of Jesus by the Jews in Jerusalem and their rulers who put him to death on a cross despite the fact that he was not found guilty of anything. Even though they sat week after week on the Sabbath and heard the scriptures read, just like the people listening to Paul at that moment, and even though many of these passages prophesied of Jesus himself, they didn't recognize Jesus as the one who was promised. Without realizing it, by their condemnation, they became part of the fulfillment of the scriptures about him. Just like Isaiah had written in chapter 53, he was despised. He was rejected by men. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Our pastor wrote in the MacArthur commentary on this passage that those who are ignorant of the written word will inevitably be ignorant of the living word, speaking of Jesus, the word made flesh. Most of the Jews in those days were looking for a Messiah who would come as a conquering hero, and Jesus did not fit their expectations. A crucified Messiah certainly did not either. But we know the story doesn't stop there. Acts 13.30, but God raised him from the dead. The resurrection makes all the difference. Paul tells them that the risen Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses, Paul proclaims the gospel, the good news that God has fulfilled the promises he made to their ancestors by raising Jesus from the dead. Paul went on to give them three Old Testament prophecies that relate to the Messiah, the son of David and the son of God, having died and been raised to life. You looked at several this week, and Paul quoted the third one, Psalm 1610, in verse 35 here. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He explained that this couldn't have been talking about David because David died and was buried. And like everyone else, he fell prey to the curse from Genesis 3.19. To dust you shall return. But verse 37, he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Jesus' body never returned to dust because he came back to life. Later, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. We do not serve a Jesus on a cross or a Jesus in a tomb. We serve the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
Only a sinless, resurrected God-man could break the power of sin and death that held all of humanity since Adam captive and condemned. Paul closed his sermon with a wonderful proclamation for all who believe and a fearful warning for all who would reject this truth. Look at verses 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The law just shows you your sin. It can never free you from it. Paul knows this firsthand, doesn't he? He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as he said in Philippians 3, 5. The Pharisees were fastidious in their attempts at law keeping, but it was never enough. And Jesus came along and explained that it's not just obeying on the outside, it's the inside of your heart that needs to be cleaned. Paul told all these people in the synagogue, trying to gain salvation by keeping the law, just like he used to do, the law of Moses couldn't free you from your sin or its consequences, but faith in Jesus Christ can. You can know that you have the full forgiveness of God and freedom from your sin. But for those who will not believe, for the scoffers, Paul reminds them of a different prophecy, referencing Habakkuk 1.5. Paul basically tells his hearers, beware, you will perish, you'll die in your sins if you do not repent and believe. Although when Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged to hear more the next week, and many of them followed and talked more with the missionaries, the response was a lot more mixed the following week, wasn't it? In the last section of chapter 13, nearly everyone in Pisidian Antioch showed up the next Sabbath. Verse 44 doesn't say they were, here, were there to hear the word of Paul and Barnabas, but they assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Since the city was primarily Gentile, most of the crowd was made up of Gentiles. This inflamed the jealousy of the Jews there, and they started contradicting Paul and even blaspheming. It seems that maybe a big part of their anger and resentment came from the offer of salvation from their God being extended to the Gentiles that they considered unworthy. As you know, Paul and Barnabas were not intimidated into silence. Verse 46 says they spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you repudiate it or thrust it aside, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The Jews there considered the Gentiles unworthy of God's salvation and grace, but Paul said that by their rejection of the good news of the gospel, they were judging themselves to be unworthy. And just as he had warned them the week before, God's judgment would fall on them. Here, Paul quotes Isaiah 49, 6. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light to the Gentiles, or some translations say a light to the nations, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Remember Jesus' words to the apostles back in Acts 1.8? You shall be my witnesses even to the end of the earth. That is happening. The Gentiles have a beautiful response to hearing this, and so should we. The majority of us today are probably Gentile. Aren't you thankful that God has sent the light of salvation to all of us? Verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life— believed. As John 1, 12 and 13 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There was another more widespread result given in verse 49. 
the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. While in verse 50, we see more hostility stirred up by the Jews. They incited the local people, they instigated a persecution, and they drove them out of their district. How did Paul and Barnabas respond to this treatment? Verse 51, they shook off the dust of their feet against them and departed. Jesus had told his disciples to do this in Matthew 10 and Luke 10. If they went to a city or household and the people rejected them and their message, they were to proclaim, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus said that on the judgment day, it would be more tolerable for wicked Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city. This is a sign of judgment on those who reject Jesus Christ and the gospel. The Jews would often shake the dust of their feet off when they came back from Gentile territory, but this sign of judgment on them, on all who reject the gospel, is far more serious. Despite the mistreatment of Paul and Barnabas and the likely aftermath for the new believers in Pisidian Antioch, verse 52 closes chapter 13 with this. The disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We praise the Lord, don't we? That as believers, our joy does not depend on circumstances. Our joy is found in our relationship with Him. Now we come to our second city under ministry in Galatia, Iconium. If you're following along on your map, don't forget to draw your next arrow. Chapter 13, verse 51 says that when Paul and Barnabas were driven out of Pisidian Antioch, they went to Iconium. They would have been traveling on one of the famous well-paved Roman roads called the Via Sebaste, built about 50 years earlier for the Roman military to have ease of travel. You can actually still hike on parts of this road in Turkey today, 2,000 years later. They went about 90 miles down from Pisidian Antioch to arrive at Iconium. As chapter 14 opens, we shouldn't be surprised at what we find. Paul and Barnabas are in a new city, so what do they do? They find the local synagogue and they start talking about the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 tell us the opposite responses that they encountered. In verse 1, it says they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. We know it's always God's work to change hearts, but we can see here how God uses the gifts and abilities that he's given his children um, to bring people to saving faith as his Holy Spirit works through his word. May we also be eager to use the abilities that God's given us, not to bring glory to ourselves, but to serve and be used by him. In verse 2, Satan is again at work to oppose God's plan by any means necessary. As with the false prophet before and the jealous Jews that we've encountered, there are unbelieving Jews here who stirred up the Gentiles and embittered them against Paul and Barnabas. The ESV says that they poisoned their mind against the brothers. Now there are both Jews and Gentiles in Iconium that are hostile to the ministry. So what are Paul and Barnabas to do? I really like how Luke words this in verse 3, which starts with, therefore, or so. They were facing opposition and persecution again. So what did they do? They spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who is testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. They stayed the course, relied on the Lord, and God blessed them. That didn't make their opponents happy, and in verse 4, Iconium was a city sharply divided. By God's grace, Paul and Barnabas learned of a conspiracy by their enemies to mistreat and stone them, and they escaped Iconium, heading for Lystra and Derbe. Sometimes under persecution, it's God's will for us to stay and endure, and other times to flee, but always to trust in Him and be faithful wherever He has us. Our third city under ministry in Galatia is Lystra. 
When Paul and Barnabas escaped, they got back on that Roman military road and went into a region of Galatia that's called Lycaonia, where the cities of Lystra and Derbe were located. The next arrow on your map should run from Iconium down to Lystra. Lystra was about 20 miles southwest of Iconium on that road. 20 miles was considered an average day's journey on foot back then, so they could have traveled this in just a single day. One reason you might have heard of Lystra before, besides the fact that Paul stopped here on several missionary journeys, is that Lystra was also the hometown of Timothy, to whom the books 1 and 2 Timothy were written. He's not mentioned here in Acts 14, but when we get to Acts 16 in a few weeks, we'll see Paul picking up Timothy in Lystra on his second missionary journey and taking him along. Paul and Barnabas had to break their pattern here because apparently the Jewish population was too small in Lystra to support a synagogue. They quickly end up with the attention of the people, however, because they encountered a man who had been crippled from birth. In chapter 14, verse 9, we see that God allowed Paul to know the man's heart. Paul healed the man by God's power, and the man immediately leaped to his feet and began walking. The crowds were astounded, and they started speaking in a local language that the missionaries couldn't understand. Luke explains in verse 11 that they were exclaiming, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. They called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermas because he was the one doing most of the speaking. There is a backdrop for this unusual story. The people of Lystra had a folktale of a time in the past when those two gods, Zeus and Hermas, had visited their city in disguise. When they asked the locals for food and shelter, they were denied by everyone except one peasant couple. In the story, the gods then drowned everyone except those two peasants, whose little home was turned into a temple. The people did not want to meet the same fate as their ancestors, so they are exuberant in their attempts to worship Paul and Barnabas. When the missionaries realized what was happening, they were grieved. They tore their clothes. They would not take for themselves the glory and worship that belonged to God alone. These are Gentile pagans who had no knowledge of the scriptures or of the true God. And you'll notice how Paul witnessed differently to these people than he did when he spoke in the synagogue in chapter 13. Paul cried out that they were only human, just like the rest of them, but that there is a creator, the one true God that they needed to know and worship. He told them to turn from these vain things, from the worship of false gods and idols, to the true and living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul explained that creation and the common grace of God in giving them rain and fruitful harvests and food and joy were a witness to God's existence and that he alone was the one to be worshipped. Paul's words were barely having any effect, but when the unbelieving Jews from Antioch and Iconium showed up, things changed. Note how far they were willing to go in their opposition to the truth. Some of them came from over a hundred miles away. They were motivated to do Satan's work by attempting to hinder the gospel, just like Paul himself had once been. They won the crowds in Lystra over, and in verse 19, instead of trying to worship the missionaries, they stoned Paul. This is the only time we know of that this happened to him. He mentioned it in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. Once I was stoned. I wonder if, as Paul was having the large stones hurled at him, he might have remembered standing by and approving when the same thing had happened to Stephen. Paul was willing now to live for Christ or to die for Christ. He was badly wounded and appeared lifeless. His persecutors dragged him out of the city, as verse 19 says, supposing him to be dead. In other words, he looked dead but hadn't actually died. 
There are some people who have theorized that he died and was resurrected, but there isn't a strong biblical basis for that, and there are good arguments against it. If there was a miracle here, it may have come in verse 20, which says, But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. Although he was so severely injured that he looked dead, when the believers came, perhaps thinking that they were going to bury him, he was able to get up and go into the city. On the very next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby, about 60 miles away. Many years later, when Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3, he referenced the trials of this trip. Persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. He went on to remind Timothy to live a life rooted in the inspired and profitable scriptures, which make believers adequate and equipped for all that God brings into their lives. We shouldn't expect things to get better in our world. When Paul wrote that evil people and impostors would proceed from bad to worse, our job is just to continue in the things we've learned and become convinced of, a life guided by scripture. We come now to our fourth and last new city for ministry in Galatia, Derby. You can add your arrow from Lystra going southeast to Derby. We only have a short account of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas there. Verse 21 simply says that they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. It's worth noting that their mission and desire was never simply to rack up numbers of converts. Remember Jesus' words at the end of his earthly ministry in Matthew 28, as he sent the apostles out to continue his work in the world? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Paul and Barnabas did this. They made disciples of all the nations. Derby was the farthest destination on this first missionary journey, and it was also the only one of these four Galatian cities where Paul and Barnabas were not mistreated. We come now to the last point on our outline, part four, retracing and reporting back to Syrian Antioch. If you are marking the return trip of Paul and Barnabas on your map, I would suggest using a different color to distinguish it, and maybe even writing yourself a map key in the bottom to indicate which color is which. From Derby, Paul and Barnabas could have taken an easier route on foot back to their sending church in Syrian Antioch. But instead, the text tells us that they backtracked, retracing their, step, their steps through the same cities where they had been persecuted. And verse 22 tells us why. Look there. Let's start in the second half of verse 21. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Consider what it reveals about Paul and Barnabas that they were willing to return to each of those cities to visit the fledgling churches, despite the persecution that they had suffered. We see their love and care for the people who made up each church. We see again the value that they placed on discipleship. What did they do when they revisited the churches? The text gave us several things. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith they needed to persevere, telling them to expect persecution, 
They needed to endure all the way to the end and not be discouraged when the inevitable hardships came. Paul and Barnabas were also appointing elders for them. It says that they appointed elders for them in every church. And this shows a plurality of elders, even in these young churches with young believers. It says they appointed them in every church. Then, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This sounds a lot like what had happened back at the start of chapter 13, when the church at Syrian Antioch prayed with fasting before Paul and Barnabas were sent out. Going down to verse 24, they passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. That involves the treacherous journey back south through the Tarsus Mountains and across the rivers. Verse 25, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. Remember that they don't seem to have done any ministry in Perga on their outbound trip, possibly because of Paul's illness, but they do give the gospel there on their return. Then they head for the port city of Adaliah on the Mediterranean Sea, and in verse 26, they sail back to Antioch. They're back where they started, in Syrian Antioch at their sending church, but there's a little more to this account, isn't there? They glorify God and they encourage the church by telling them all that God has done. Syrian Antioch is described as the place from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. By God's work in and through them, they accomplished the work he had called them to back at the beginning of chapter 13. So in verse 27, they gathered the whole church together and they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Their report was not to bring glory to themselves, but to God. It was a blessing and an encouragement to the believers at Antioch to hear how their prayers had been answered and how much their beloved leaders had been used by God to bring about the salvation of many. Much like it is a blessing to us when we get to hear reports from our own beloved missionaries about what God is doing through them where they minister. That is one of several reasons that I love getting to go to Every Every Woman's Grace's Mindset for Missions. It's exciting to get to hear direct answers to prayer and see how God is working around the world to build his church. Verse 28 just tells us their next stage of ministry. They've completed this missionary journey, and so they again are faithful in their local church. They spend a long time with the disciples. As we wrap up our study of Paul's first missionary journey, we should consider a few things that we've seen today. We should praise the Lord for faithful service servants, both then and now, that take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and we should pray for those servants. We should also be rejoicing in how God uses imperfect people like Paul, like you, and like me, to share his word and bring people to himself. Consider who he wants you to tell today. Who does he have in your life that you need to share the gospel with? Pray for our missionaries who are giving the gospel. Pray for the people who need to hear the gospel. And pray for yourself that God would give you boldness and the words to say. We can be thankful for how we've seen the good sovereignty of God in all things. We know that God is always working for his own glory and for the good of those who love him. And we can rest in that regardless of our circumstances. Just a short time later, Paul had to write Galatians to these same churches. He had to tell them to hold fast to sound doctrine And we should remember that lesson as well, to cling tightly to the word of God and not be led astray by false teaching or error that may come across. Sometimes it's made to sound very good. People will take scriptures out of context to say something that they were never intended to say. So we need to be like the Bereans in Acts, students who go back to God's word when we hear something, and we need to cling to salvation by grace through faith alone. 
Also remember that trials will come to all those seeking to live a godly life, just like Paul wrote in Romans 5, 3 through 5. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Knowing that God even uses our hardest times for His glory and our good, we have a source of endless joy and peace in whatever this life may bring.